If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 1, verse 35 through 51. John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. It's an interesting question. Why are you here today? And it might be that you were uh, pressured into coming by maybe your parents, maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's social pressure, you know, like society says I need to be in church, so I go to church. Maybe you think that by being here that you earn grace. Hopefully you're here because you desire to be a disciple. But that leaves us with a question, how do I become a disciple? What makes a disciple? We need instructions for everything. We really do. Uh, whether it's how to become a disciple, we need instructions on how to do that. Or if it's how do I fix my car when the headlight goes out, I still pull up YouTube and I YouTube how to change my headlight. I am completely mechanically um, unhelpful. But YouTube gives me instructions and I'm able to accomplish a simple task like that. Maybe it's a home repair. Or maybe you're simply cooking at home and you pull out a recipe and you go, all right, one teaspoon of salt and this many teaspoons of this and that of oregano and voila, it just kind of pops out. But we need instructions. We need a recipe. And Jesus gives his first disciples instructions. And we'll see what he's telling them. These are the steps that you need to take. And the steps pretty much are, disciples know, serve, and believe in Jesus. Disciples know, serve, and believe in Jesus. Let's look at the text, and then we will go to the Lord in a word of prayer. John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and, seeing them following him, said to him, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, when translated, teacher. Where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. That was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated, a stone. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. 
Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the ability to look at it and to see what you want us to do as disciples. We pray that as we see it, it would not simply be head knowledge, but that we would seek to apply it in our day-to-day lives. In your name we pray. Amen. The first thing that we see is that we are supposed to know Jesus. Knowing Jesus is an important part of discipleship. So we should either know Jesus or we should be learning about Jesus. And we learn a number of things about who Jesus is through this text. And I've worked through it, uh, not really in the order that we see them in the text. But the first thing that we see about Jesus is that he is the Son of Man. You see that in verse 51. Most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And this is actually a term for deity. And it's not a common term. We see it appear in Daniel chapter 7. If you would go with me to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, you see it used. And so Jesus picks up this term that is not a common term, and he's going to develop it, and he's going to use it no less than 12 times to refer to himself through the Gospel of John. He's going to develop this term and what it means. But you see here in Daniel chapter 7 that it's definitely a term that implies deity and kingship. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, he came to God the Father, and they brought him near before him. He came near to God the Father. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So he picks up on this idea that he's the Son of Man, and he's going to continue to develop this idea that Jesus is God. And he's going to develop it throughout the text. But he also develops the idea of the Lamb of God. We saw this last two weeks ago as well in verse 29, and then he repeats the same type of idea in verse 36. John sees Jesus and he says, the Lamb of God. And the Lamb of God took the punishment we deserved. Me and you are deserving of God's punishments. We are sinners, and as a result, God had to send his son to come to the earth and to die for us and to pay the penalty that we deserved. And if we place our trust in him, we no longer have to face that penalty. And so we learn who Jesus is. He is the Lamb of God. He has paid the sacrifice for our sins. We no longer have to pay that sacrifice. 
but we continue to learn more about who Jesus is. Not only is Jesus God, he's the Son of Man, not only is he the Lamb of God, he's the one who's paid the sacrifice for our sins, but the disciples also learn that he is the Messiah and the King. And you see this in a couple of verses, verse 41, 45, and then 49. You see the idea that he is the one that is awaited, that is looked forward to. Verse 41, this is Andrew talking to Peter. He said, he first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, who which is translated the Christ. That is the anointed one, the one that all Israel was looking forward to. And as they were looking forward to him, it's not shocking to us then that in verse 45, when another one of the early disciples, Nathaniel is telling, or Philip is telling Nathaniel, he says, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. We found the guy that is the king, the one that's going to come back to this earth and establish a king that will last forever. And so they were excited about it. And so it's not shocking at all when Nathaniel sees Jesus and he interacts with Jesus and Jesus tells him, You're a man with no deceit. And not only that, I knew you before right now. I knew you when you were under the fig tree. His response is, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So he is the one that Moses and the prophets had awaited. And he will one day come and establish his kingdom. His kingdom is not yet established. He will one day return and he will establish a permanent kingdom. And we are looking forward to that day. But it's also very interesting. Not only are we supposed to know who Jesus is and what he's doing and has done and will do, but we also need to realize that Jesus knows us intimately. It's really interesting. Throughout the text, you're going to see Jesus know people intimately, and that is actually going to serve as the primer for belief. Look at chapter 1, verse 50. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe you will see greater things than these? So Jesus says, The only reason why you actually believe is because you understand that I intimately know you. And so how does Jesus know us? You see that Jesus knows our future, our present, and our past. Our future is in verse one, chapter 1, verse 42. And this is dealing with Peter. When Peter comes and he meets Jesus for the first time, Jesus says to him, And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said to Peter, You are Simon, the son of Jonah, which shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. Jesus knew all that Peter would accomplish. And so he tells him, you're going to accomplish a whole lot for me. And it's not through your own ability. It's through what I'm going to do through you. But I know your future. And your future is so great that you have a different name. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated as stone. And this is developed more in another text. But Jesus knows what we'll accomplish. And it's not what we accomplish through our own ability. It's what we accomplish as we yield and submit to and are led by the Holy Spirit. And he says, I know you that intimately. I know what you will accomplish. If Jesus were to look at your life today, 
what would he say that you would accomplish? Are you yielding to the Holy Spirit in such a way that Jesus could look at your life and say, your life is so drastically going to be used for my honor and my glory that I would give you a different name. What would Jesus say about your future? Jesus, though, also knows about our present. So this is possibly because of living according to the Holy Spirit. Jesus also knows about our present. And this deals with Philip bringing Nathanael to Jesus. And Nathanael is one who doubts a little bit what Jesus, who Jesus is. And he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. And so he gets to Jesus and Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. That's a pretty impressive statement about one man. No deceit. He intimately knows his character at the present. And he says, you are a man who has no deceit in you. It reminds us of Psalm chapter 32, verse 2. If you would turn with me there, Psalm chapter 32, verse 2. And that's a passage that talks about the idea of deceit and the blessing. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So God says people that are like Nathaniel who have no deceit in them are blessed. And Nathaniel is not demonstrating pride in verse 48. You might think as you read through it that he's kind of like, well, yeah, of course I am. You look at verse 48. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? He's like, wow, he really intimately knows me. He's not demonstrating pride. He's like, I am intimately known by Jesus better than anybody else has ever known me. My mom and dad didn't know this, me this well, that I am a man who is blessed by God because I am a man who has no deceit in me. Once again, if Jesus were here today and he was examining your life, what would he say? Would he say, behold, a person who has no deceit in them? Or would he say something else? What would Jesus say of your life. But you also see that Jesus knows our past, and that's also dealing with Nathaniel in verse 48. Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So our actions, whether they're good actions or bad actions, whether they're good like Nathaniel, and you're a person that Jesus can look at and say, Wow, someone who has no deceit, or if you have a tainted past, kind of like the Apostle Paul, who persecuted believers and helped killing Christians, God can forgive and renew you and bring you into relationship to him. But the question is, what does God know about you? And are you seeking to be a disciple in such a way that what he knows about you is changing and becoming something good or better 
If he were to look at you today, if he were to look at you tomorrow, would there be steps in your life that he would say, I know your future, I know what you will accomplish for me, and it is so impressive, you deserve a name change. Jesus knows us far more intimately than we have ever been known. How does he know you? But not only should we as disciples know about Jesus, we should also be serving Jesus. And so you see that the disciples also were involved heavily in serving Jesus in various ways. And so one of the first things you see the disciples doing is that they're following Jesus. And they're involved in that way. Verses 37 through 38 This is right after John has pointed to Jesus with two of his disciples standing by, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God and Andrew and another unnamed disciple decide to follow Jesus. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and seeking them, seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, when translated, Where? Are you staying? The disciples see the truth and they desire it. It's something that they want. They've heard John's teaching. They've heard him bearing witness to the Pharisees. They've heard him bearing witness to the religious leaders in the previous verses, verses 19 through 34. And then they see Jesus. And when Jesus comes, he points at Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God And they know that it's something that they need. And so they seek after it. They desire it. They naturally desire truth. A disciple naturally desires the truth and seeks after it. But Jesus asked them an interesting question. What are are you seeking? He's asking them, not simply, what? He asks them what, but it's not just, are you looking for like the McDonald's or what are you looking for? It's asking them a heart question. He's asking them ultimately, what are you following? What does your heart yearn after? What makes you get up in the morning? Why do you perform your job the way you do? Do you perform your job the way you do because you will get financial compensation? You should do that. We do want financial compensation. But if that's the primary motive, if your primary motive for being here is because you got drug here by your parents or by your spouse or by social pressures or by the desire to earn some type of grace, that is not a proper motive for being a disciple. And there are disciples in the Bible that were disciples of Jesus that are not in heaven. And so he says, true disciples follow and seek after Jesus. We can seek sexual fulfillment. We could seek power. We could seek ease. We could seek peace. There are a variety of other things that we could be seeking. But ultimately, it's a heart question. What do you yearn for? What does your heart want? And the disciples' response is, Rabbi, where are you staying? 
They want to sit at his feet and learn. They want to remain with him. They want to abide with him. And you see that then picked up. And that's the next thing that disciples do. Disciples remain. Disciples abide. Verses 37 through 39. What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. And the implication is that it was late in the day, so they stayed with him, probably through the night. And so in the next verse, verse 40, you see that right at the beginning of the day, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew. Right away, the next morning, he's going and he's finding other people. After remaining with Jesus and abiding in Jesus, he's excited about who Jesus is and what he's learned, and he's ready to share it. But disciples abide. It's the same type of idea that Jesus is going to talk about in more detail one-on-one with his disciples when we get to John chapter 15, verses 4 through 7. Abiding is a key theme and a key to maturity and growth in the Christian life. If you would turn with me to John chapter 15, verses 4 through 7. And Jesus is instructing his disciples, and he's talking about the passage with the true vine. And he says that he's the, true, he's the true vine, and they are the branches. And then verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. Are you abiding? You might say, well, Pastor David, Jesus is not walking on the earth right now, so I can't go hang out with him and sleep over at his house and have a slumber party. That is true. But are you engaging in God's word? Are you seeking to be in community with other believers? Do you spend time regularly in his word at your house? Do you make it a priority to be involved in church activities, whether it be Sunday morning, Sunday school, Sunday night, Wednesday night? We have various Bible studies. Are you seeking to grow? Are you seeking to live in Christ and to see that fleshed out and lived out in other areas of your life. The early disciples knew it was important to remain and to abide in Christ. But they didn't stop there. They didn't just follow, and they didn't just abide and learn and grow. They also brought others to Jesus. They go and introduce others to Jesus. Look with me at verse 40 through 42. This is Andrew, and Andrew's going to go to Simon Peter, his brother, and he's going to bring him to Jesus. He's found something that's important to him. And that's what we do when we find something important. When you find a nice restaurant, you don't keep it to yourself, right? You tell your friends, hey, go to this nice restaurant. When you find a nice car that you like driving that car, you tell your friends, this is a nice car. When you find a nice vacation spot you tell your friends 
We tell people when we like something. And that's what his first disciples did. One of the two who had heard him, heard John speak and followed him, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. It's interesting, he doesn't really have that much to say. He doesn't give him a 15-point outline of who Jesus is. All he says is, we have found the anointed one. We have found the one which the whole Bible that we have is pointing to and looking forward to. This is the Israelite that we have all been longing for. We have found him. You need to come. And he came. And then Jesus says, I know what you will accomplish, Peter. You have great things that you accomplish through me. Andrew brought Peter. But look also, Philip will bring Nathaniel. In verses 44 through 46, Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. It's interesting, I'm not convinced, but there are good scholars that actually think that the way that verse 43 is translated could actually be saying that Andrew also brought Philip. But I'm not convinced of it. But it is definitely a pattern that the early disciples bring others to Jesus. It's possible that Andrew brought Philip and that Philip then turned around and brought Nathaniel. I'm not convinced, but it is definitely a possibility. Verse 44, Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. They're from the same town. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Come and see. He introduces him. And he offers, he invites him to come and learn more. And you can do that. And if you can't do that, come talk to me and I'll help you learn how to do that. You should be able to do a basic invitation to somebody and then begin to explain to them the basics of who Jesus is. We have the John studies available. It's a four-week study. It only takes about an hour once a week for four weeks. If you're interested in doing it for any reason, talk to me. I'll happily meet with you over the next four weeks and we'll go through that study. And it will teach you how to do this in a very simple yet easy way to understand and to accomplish. He says, come and see. And Nathaniel comes, and we've already looked at the interaction. He goes, I know you as a present man, Nathaniel. You are a godly man. You're one who has no deceit. And he's like, how do you know me? That's me to a T. And he says, before you came here, while you were under the fig tree, I knew you. I knew your past too, Nathaniel. Not just now. I knew you before. And that is the God we serve. So they go and introduce others to the Messiah. And that's something that we should be actively involved in as well. But it's interesting that that's not the only things that disciples need to do. To see, disciples need to believe in Jesus. And this is the really scary part of the whole text. We can be a disciple for our whole life and regularly be involved 
and all the good things that churches do, going to all the Bible studies, all the prayer meetings, all the services, going and visiting the sick people, and never have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. You look at Judas and Thomas. Judas is referred to numerous times throughout the Gospels as one of the twelve. And you have to ask yourself, one of the twelve what? One of the twelve disciples. And yet he never knew Jesus. He never believed in Jesus. Are you a disciple who knows a lot and serves a lot? Are you a disciple who's trusting in Jesus' finished work on your behalf? It's interesting. You look at the life of Thomas. Look at what Thomas says as a result of the resurrection when Jesus comes and presents himself to him. I believe that John, Thomas did not get saved until this point. John chapter 20, verse 28. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. I believe that's where Thomas placed his faith in Jesus. Once again, a disciple of Jesus, but he never placed his faith and trust and hope for eternal life in the finished work of Christ. He knew a whole lot about Jesus. He'd shared Jesus with a whole lot of people, but he did not know what Jesus had accomplished for him. Disciples must believe in the finished work of Jesus. You could be a disciple, but never have believed. And when we say we're supposed to believe, it's probably important for me to explain to you in a little bit what we mean by believe. It means that you realize that you are a sinner and that your sin separates you from a just and holy God. And there is nothing that you can do or that anybody you know can do for you to take care of that sin problem that you have with God. You are born an enemy of God. And that's why Jesus sent his son, the son of God, the son of man, God, came to earth, lived a perfect sinless life, died on the cross, paid the penalty for you and me, so that when we trust his finished work, the penalty he paid for our sin, we can then have eternal life. So the question is, what are you trusting in? Do you believe yourself? Nathaniel did, verse 50. Jesus answered and said to him, Because you said, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe you will see greater things than these? And that's what the Gospel of John is. We're going to see greater and greater things that Jesus has done. And it's great to know all about these great things that Jesus has accomplished. And it's great to be involved in serving him, whether it be by following or bringing others to Christ or by abiding and remaining in his word. But do you personally know Jesus as your savior? What are you trusting in? Your family will not accomplish it for you. Nice things that you do will not accomplish it for you. Only Jesus' finished work is enough, and you must trust it. So what does this text mean for us? What am I supposed to do as a result? How do I be a good disciple? I think there are a number of things that we need to be actively involved in if we want to be 
disciples. You need to know Jesus. You need to know that he is the son of God, that he has paid the sacrifice. He is the lamb of God. He is the coming king. He will establish his kingdom eternally here on the earth. And he knows us intimately. He knows whether or not the sin problem that you have has been dealt with and you are like Nathaniel and you are a man in whom there is no deceit or if you have sin that is a barrier between you and God. He knows us and we need to know him. We need to be involved in serving Jesus. And that includes abiding in Jesus. That means that we need to be bringing others to Jesus. How are we involved in that? What active steps have you taken this last week to point others to Jesus? What active steps have you taken this last month to bring others to Jesus? Me and you can both say, I have found the Messiah. Come and see. But do we? And then finally, disciples need to believe. In Jesus, We need to place our faith in the finished work of Christ. All the rest without this amounts to nothing. You will face a crisis eternity in hell without this last step. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you provide hope, you provide clarity. We pray that it would not simply be head knowledge that we would know more about you and that we would even serve you, but that we pray that we would have a desire to serve you and to know you, but that it would be motivated by a knowledge of what you have accomplished and have applied to our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.